I want to share today about believing and seeing the character of Christ in the church. I think it's an important message and maybe even a little lost on this generation. The importance of seeing the very character of Christ inside of the church people. Not just from the pulpit, but in all of us. When it was in Antioch, when they began to see the disciples, they called them Christians. The word Christian means Christ-like. Basically, they were saying, you remind me of Jesus. You seem a lot like Jesus. What an incredible honor for someone to say that to you, that you remind me of Jesus. That's an incredible honor to be thought of being close to Jesus or acting like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus. That's an amazing, amazing thing. We Sometimes we, we don't realize how amazing Jesus was. His love, His holiness, His peace, His joy. I guess I want to bring this up because it's important that the world and our families see the love of Jesus in us, see the holiness, the standards of Christ in our life, not just the talking about Jesus. I think we have a whole generations of the world who have experienced people talking about Jesus, claiming to know Jesus, but not experiencing Christ, the love of Christ through the church. And because of that, we have a world that has said that Christianity is no different than a Buddhist or a, a Muslim. It's just a different religion with a different God. It's just just like all the other religions. Well, we're supposed to be more than that. And I see so many chasing after spiritual experiences, emotionalism, chasing after the gifts of the Spirit, and not chasing after the characteristics of Christ in them. And it's much easier to to go experience a, a good service where the anointing falls or signs and wonders may happen and say, oh, that was a great service. But we're supposed to do more than that. I'm going to start over here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we have the man who was in the church, not a visitor, but actually a member of the church, maybe even a leader in the church, who was living in sin openly and worshiping God at the same time. This was in a church that had many miracles, many signs and wonders. And yet this was going on. Paul says, you're puffed up. You bunch of preachers who are involved with the church are puffed up because you're allowing this to go on. Chapter 5, we'll start in verse... Let's just start in verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, verse 10, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul is clarifying something he wrote earlier to the church, which was, I don't want you to keep company with sexually immoral people, which was very prevalent in that culture at that time, in the world part. And he was making sure it didn't creep into the church. Well, why did he have to clarify? It was because the man who was living in sin, it says here he was with his father's wife, openly in church. In other words, they probably held hands on the front row and lifted their hands during worship time. 
and no one can make him change or stop. I would probably guess that he said something along the lines of, I'm a born-again child of God. I can do what I want in the flesh because it doesn't affect my spirit. My spirit man is saved. My flesh it doesn't affect my spirit. And Paul was concerned for his very salvation. And so this man, I'm guessing here, because Paul had to clarify, when I wrote to you not to keep company with sexually immoral people, I meant... Uh, I didn't mean those in the world, because then you have to remove yourself. See, Paul's concern wasn't with the church being around sexually immoral people. Paul's concern was with someone in the church. And so this would have been the argument of the man. When someone said, well, Paul says that I can't even have dinner with you because you are sexually immoral. You're sleeping with your father's wife. That man said, oh, no, no, no. Paul definitely didn't mean me, because I'm a child of God. I can do what I want in my flesh. It won't affect my spirit. Paul meant that we're not to be around those icky sinners out there who are living in sin. So Paul corrects that and says, No, I don't want you to remove yourself from the world. I don't want you to remove yourself from being touching shoulders and rubbing elbows with those unsaved people. Verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, an adulterer, a reveler, a drunkard, an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So Paul clarifies saying, I don't want you to fellowship with someone who is a brother, a believer. And that's the difference here, is that the world is going to be like the world. The world has many, many different ways to sin. And inventing new ways every day as we speak. He's saying that it's someone who says, I am saved. And see, it's not a visitor to the church that he's saying, well, don't eat, don't spend time with them, don't eat dinner with them. But someone who says, I can do and live like sin, like the world, and God loves me just the way I am. I don't have to change. That's the danger of this comment, the danger in the church, that the man in the church was saying that I can live like the world to an extreme extent and still be accepted by God. And Paul said, don't even eat eat with such a one because he's not trying to learn. He's not trying to change. He's trying to hold on to his sin. He is saying, this is who I am. There's a big difference in your Christianity with you struggling with something versus you embracing something. If you embrace something, you're saying, I am fighting for this. This is who I am. If you're struggling with it, you're saying, "Ah, that's not who I am. I quit, but I failed. I stumbled. I repented. See, that's a big difference. That's a big dividing line. Are you struggling against something or are you embracing something and trying to keep it alive and justified in your Christianity? Verse 12. What have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? So this tells you a little bit more of the argument of this guy in the church saying, you can't judge me. Who are you to judge me? God is my judge and he told me that I'm okay. I love God just as much as you do. I hear God just as well as you do. He's not told me to quit sleeping with my father's wife. Who are you to judge me? Well, Paul's very clear. What do we have to do with judging those who are outside? We're not to judge the world. They're the world. They're sinners. Do you not judge those who are inside? 
So those in the church, yes, we are to judge their lifestyle, never their motives. It's not fair to say to someone, you are this because you are just a dirty, rotten scoundrel or or you're selfish or whatever. We don't judge motives, but we can judge the fruit. If someone came up to me and said, hey, can I go spend time with your kids? Well, I'm going to judge their lifestyle first because I don't want them trying to indoctrinate my kids into something that I don't agree with. For what do we have to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? For those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. So Paul judged this man in the church and sent him out so his body could be destroyed by Satan so that he might change his heart and get saved. And really, I know that Pastor Dave would preach in the past that there's a place in revival to where this kind of judgment will be important to keep uh, the doctrine pure, that if there's someone trying to introduce sin or false doctrine and won't repent, won't change, that there is a judgment, a ministry of judgment to try to rescue them, because not only are they going to harm people and take them away from God or even send some people to hell, they themselves are in danger of a hellfire. And that a love for them, the judgment, Pastor Dave would say, I'd much rather be a man judged on this earth and make it to heaven than a man hugged on this earth and end up in hell. So there is a place in revival that that's going to be a part of it. But I'm not trying to preach on that. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to get to where you understand it's important as a church that we look at the fruit of other people in our life and that we are to judge inside the church who should be looked up to and respected. I remember one time there was a young man who came to Bible college in Tennessee, and he just had a chip on the shoulder, and he wanted to be respected. I remember him demanding that we respect him. You must respect me. I know God. You must respect me. And I remember being tasked with having to remove him from the from the Bible college and kick him out of school because he was so arrogant. He wouldn't change, and he demanded that everyone respected him. And even with common things, like, hey, we're all going to get up and we're going to go clean the church. Well, you should ask me politely. You can't expect me to do that. You need to treat me with respect. I'm equal with you. And, and it was just a pride that was destroying him. And I remember having to tell him, you know, we're kicking you out of school because you haven't repented. We've tried to work with you. One time he, he shouted down one of the teachers and said, you're wrong, I'm right, and who are you to tell me I'm wrong? And it was getting ridiculous, and it was destroying other people's hearts, and, and even some of the classroom etiquette was being destroyed. And and I remember because I remember he was a very big man, like big muscles, and, and I'm thinking, why are you sending me to have to do this? Can't someone else take their life in their own hands? And but nonetheless, I got to be the one who did it and had to remove him from school. He didn't like it, but to be honest, I think it was the best thing for him. Hopefully he grew up somewhere and found his walk with God. There is a part in the church where it's very important that we keep our standards high, that the standards of the church are very important. And, and we don't ever want to lose the value of judging good characteristics qualifications of ministers. Right now, I would dare say that 
the main qualification of who who is classified in the Christian world as being a good minister for most people starts with how anointed are they, how many people go to their church, how exciting of a preacher are they, how many likes do they have on social media, how many followers they have, how much money they have. There's many different standards that we use in the church, but a lot of that comes from the world and not from the scripture. How anointed are they are, how charismatic they are. I had so many struggles in my early walk with God because I was blessed to be around a lot of preachers in the back room. And I soon discovered that they were men and women just like anyone else. They had flaws and weaknesses and personalities. But I was puzzled when I found a preacher who God used to walk in miracles. But yet behind the scene, they were having trouble living holy. Behind the scene, they weren't loving to the people behind the scene. And it puzzled me, how could God use someone? How could God use someone? And them have so many flaws in their life. Well, what you find out is that you can have a relationship with God where you will see, depending on your calling, signs and wonders, and God will work through you for the people's sake. But it's not because of who you are. It's because that you are just walking in your calling. So I'd hear someone prophesy and could, as they say, read your mail, could tell you your address and, and what you ate for lunch and, and what you were going through. Amazing, amazing things. But yet find out later that they weren't living right. They weren't living holy. Or they were being jerks to the, the helpers in the back room. And, and And I see people who could teach the word amazingly and, and yet, they couldn't love right. Well, there's a character of Christ that he wants to come first in our church before the signs and wonders and the miracles. It's not fair to ask God to bring the signs and wonders and the miracles of Jesus without bringing forth the characteristics of Jesus also in us. That's the love, the joy, the peace, the holiness, all those attributes of Christ which is in us, in our new nature, that he wants to come forward. So now let's go over to 1 Timothy. I've already clarified that we are allowed to judge inside of the church. And that means if you are part of a body, part of a church, you submit to that, that other people are allowed to have an opinion about you. I see a lot of people who are striving to be used of God, to be recognized as spiritual but yet don't want to allow you to judge their lifestyle. And that's a dangerous place for anyone to be where you won't allow people to judge your lifestyle. You just want to show them what you want to show them. I'm not saying everyone's perfect because God knows I'm not perfect. I know we all struggle in different areas, yes. But there should be a standard that we're allowed to hold high and say the standard of the church should be love, holiness, kindness, gentleness, that should be the standard of the church, and signs and wonders and miracles. I was in uh, Nicaragua, I think it was, when they took me down to a house, because in that house was a Bible, and they had it covered in plexiglass. This was in the 1990s, and that Bible would ooze oil. People would flock from all over Nicaragua, because it's a very Catholic-type nation, and they would 
just be amazed at what God was doing by oozing oil out of that Bible. And I remember thinking, like, it was a puzzling thing for me to see something that spiritual, that kind of a wonder, and think, well, why am I not excited on the inside about this? Because I began to, at that time, to understand that God's heart was not to win the world with wonders, like oil oozing out of a Bible. Uh, it was meant to win the world with signs and wonders of the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, the cripple walking, lives being changed. But it was so amazing to me how many people navigated to that kind of wonder. And then years later, there was the experience of people in church having gold dust and gems falling while they preached and and experiences of glory clouds and all that. And I've seen so many people strive for that. Like that did something when when you're in a service and gold dust fell on you. You could say, look how God is using me when you found a gem in your service. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there was years where people would find gems in the sanctuary or on their chair or at their feet that were supernatural. And they would say, look what God is doing. And people would begin to get excited about that. Excited about a gem. But if you had a a sick child, there was no healing available. It was just excited about a gem that fell on your chair. It's kind of in our immaturity that we seek after that kind of sign of wonder instead of the the sign of wonder of holiness and love and peace and a a healthy marriage, a healthy home. And we're going to read that. We're going to read this in 1 Timothy. We'll start there, chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, uh, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So this is a definition of a a bishop or an overseer in the church. The church is an important part of revival. The structure of a church is supposed to be a healthy place for people to grow up, to be instructed, to be corrected, to be taught, to allow them to make mistakes and to be forgiven and to mature. The church is a very, a healthy church is a very important part of God's plan for revival. Without it, you have a bunch of people who have no one holding them accountable. No one seeing into their life and saying, you're not ready yet. You know how many times I had a man standing between me and what I wanted to do? You know how many times that's happened to me in my life? I mean, countless times where I've had pastors and leaders above me where I was anxious to go do something. And they said, no, it's not time yet. No, you're not ready yet. No, I'm not going to let you speak yet. No, I'm not going to let you 
a minister. No, I want you to do this or do that. And and I had to learn how to trust God with my life rather than manipulate man to give me what I thought I deserved. And thank God for that because it's forced me to grow up in many areas, to, to lose my selfish ambition, to allow God to promote me instead of, of man. Many, many, many people I know in the past have gone astray because they've not been together in a church form with someone who could be in their life to say, no, you're not ready yet. I can't tell you how many people ran ahead of God because they removed the voices in their life, the accountability in their life to go ahead so no one could judge them because they wanted to be used of God. They wanted to be recognized as a man or woman of God. They wanted someone to say, wow, that's God in you. But the God in them they wanted to see was, oh, look at how well they hear God. Look at how well they testify about God. Look at the miracles they say happen. Look at the signs and wonders. But we can clearly see here that the attributes that we're to acknowledge is maturity, is characteristics of love and joy and holiness. Let's, let's read this again. And while I'm reading this, I want you to look for the words anointing, look for the words glory, signs and wonders, can read your mail, can hear God, can move a crowd. Let's look for that in this qualification for an overseer. Verse 2, chapter 3, the bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well with his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest, when he, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Just from this one set of verses, I have to be concerned about much of the church world, much of the leaders in the church world, because this is telling us the way we judge who is a leader in the church is not by anointing or miracles, signs and wonders, how many followers, how exciting they, their services are, their great one-liners. There's wonderful, there's great preaching all over the place. But the way, the only way to qualify someone to be a leader in the church is when someone gets to inspect their personal life to see if these qualifications are in place. Again, you don't see anointed, you don't see how well they hear God, you don't see a move of the Spirit, you don't see signs and wonders, you don't see even miracles here. You're seeing here the qualifications to be a leader in the church is very practical. Are you married to one wife or you got two? And I don't necessarily think this is someone who means that you only get married one time. I'm not going to argue that. I think that this means one at a time, that you don't have two women at the same time temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. So these are very practical. And your house is in order. Your home is in order because you focused, the Christ in you caused you to focus on making your home be in order. 
Uh, now, when children get to be 18, they can live their own life, make their own decisions. So I don't judge a man ever by their grown-up kids because, you know, grown-up kids will make all kinds of decisions for whatever reasons. We don't judge them. But we can judge someone who has younger kids in their house and they're letting them run around. Because if you let your younger kids run around your house, they're going to run around the church. And you won't have order. There is order in the church. Likewise, verse 8, Deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Let these also be tested. Let them serve as deacons being found blameless. So you, know, you like that word tested? That means that we're to be able to test the leaders to see if they are who they say they are. So much of the church world today is searching and looking for sensationalism, looking for excitement, looking for the next move, the next group who does it better, lacking so much in just the basic characteristics. And I would say it's important for the church to get back to the basics, to where we begin to look at people's lives and see that they're living for God in holiness. Again, we're not all perfect in holiness. But so much of our desire to be used of God, we chase God using us. I want to hear, I want God to use me. Rather than, I want to develop the characteristics of Christ in us. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look there. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older man be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Listen, this is really the job of the church. To develop people, to help people develop in the characteristics of Christ, of maturity, of holiness. To be there week after week. It's easy for an evangelist. We need evangelists. An evangelist will tell you, I want you to turn to John 3.16. Now, rip that page out of your Bible. That's the only page you'll need. And he'll say, we need to win souls. And he'll run ahead and get you out winning souls. That's, you know, we need evangelists like that who come into a city, blow it up, and then disappear to the next city the next week. We need guys like that. That's a calling. But the church is not to be like that. The church is not to be an event every Sunday. The church is to be a home-cooked meal every Sunday to where people come, they experience family, they grow up, they talk, they're encouraged, and they have a great meal. Not an event where everything's spectacular. That's not practical. And here's proof. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Where's the excitement in sound doctrine? Remember Paul teaching and the boy fell out, of, fell asleep and fell out of the, the window and died and he had to resurrect him from the dead? That tells you the kind of teaching the Apostle Paul did, enough to put you to sleep. Not enough to keep you excited around all the time, keeping you motivated. It was about teaching the truth, teaching the Word of God, causing people to grow up, encouraging people to mature. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older man be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older woman, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, 
that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young man to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that that one who is opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Wow, what an example of a Christian, that they have nothing evil to say of you. Not saying they won't make it up, but they have nothing to show that's evil against you. This is the Christianity that we should be pursuing. Yes, we are after the signs and wonders and the miracles. We're after a move of God, the revival that will change the nation. But the foundation of us cannot just be, God spoke to me, look at this amazing thing, look at that amazing thing. The foundation must be the characteristics of Christ have developed in me and grown in me that I have love and I have maturity and I have holiness. I have a great testimony, great characteristics of Christ exposed in my life, showing in my life. I remember that we had one group, they called it a revival at the time, and there was many people around the world who were excited about the idea of a possible move of God. And there's people hungry, wanting a move of God, but they're starting not to trust things. Well, this move was happening, and they were excited, and people were coming from all over the country to experience this move of God. And I remember it was puzzling to me because there was some discussion of doctrine that was very wrong, very off, very off-putting, very unscriptural in my mind, about how God moved and experiences with angels and things they taught and the way they acted. But yet they were saying that we are having a great move of God. I remember being, being frustrated as a leader because when people came up to me and I even tried to bring up concerns or questions about, well, yeah, but they're really not teaching the truth. Well, you're just being jealous is what I was told. You're just being jealous. You're just being jealous because God's using them and and you're just holding on to your... You need to quit being such a doctrine guy. (laughs) And, And can't we all just get along? Let's just... Can't we all just get along and work together? God's moving. Let's be excited. And I remember being like almost slapped in the face with that because God was moving and how dare I try to even question or throw water on that fire. That God was moving. I should have just got excited for them and and let them go. And, And really it started to spark people inside of churches all over the nation who would come against their pastors. And I understand some pastors need to be come against, but... But basically it was like, you're not allowed to touch this or discourage me in this because it is signs and wonders and miracles and experiences. It ended up being a disaster. I remember Pastor Dave Roberson wrote a letter describing this move as being off-filter, being wrong in so many ways. And one guy came to me and said, why would Pastor Dave write that? Who is he to write that how dare he write i mean it was so and i remember saying well that is his job he is an apostle it's his job to declare false doctrine wrong doctrine and so it wasn't that he was jealous and that was the claim well you're just being jealous because god's not moving in your life in your ministry 
the way he's moving in this guy's ministry. So leave it alone and let it just have fun. Let's go. And ended up they were having experiences with female angels. The angels were teaching them all kinds of wrong truths. They weren't angels at all. They were demons. And there was alcoholism involved in the, in the leadership and, and even adultery and many different things going on. And, and I don't want to ever... Listen, when people struggle and stumble and fail, I don't want to ever get too much into saying, ha, 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 I caught you. You know, we don't want to be like that. We have prayer and mercy for everyone, but it has to be that they are humble enough to seek the truth. And I've seen in that move and other moves like it to where people would jump on board because of the idea that there was a move of God. And they wouldn't go into a an experience with glasses of maturity. Well, let me see, is there solid doctrine, sound doctrine? Is there love? Is there holiness? Is there integrity? Is there reverence, incorruptibility? Is, are these things here in this move of God? Because if they're not, let me be clear, it's not a move of God. It's a move of man. A move of God will always include these words. Let me read them to you. Titus chapter 2. In all things, verse 7, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that no one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, as well as pleasing in all things, not answering back. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. There was a book that came out called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988. I remember when it came out, I was a new Christian And I remember hearing the stories of people who really thought Jesus was coming to a specific date in 1988. And many people quit their jobs and were sitting on their their roof waiting for the return of Christ. They believed it with all their heart. And what was interesting was the stories eventually started to come out how people who believed it began to rack up credit card bills, uh, buying a bunch of things and going out and doing, experiencing things they wanted to do on the credit card, thinking, well, we're going to leave, and I'll just leave you with the bill. (laughs) And I remember thinking, wow, that may be a reason why you don't get raptured, if that's the case, that you're not being a good witness. (laughs) But the way that we are willing to reshape the church model after charisma, talent, activity, there's many people who Once a group of people starts getting excited, it's easy for another group to get excited. And just that movement of excitement can seem like, well, that's God moving, but really it's man moving. One time, Pastor Dave shocked me because I was talking about a preacher. I said, isn't it amazing, Pastor Dave, how this preacher went from having a little church to now having an incredible big ministry? And look what God did. I was starstruck by how many people, how much money, and how much celebrity this man had. And Pastor Dave said to me in in the only way he could, Alan, sometimes man will promote you when God won't. And I was very shocked that he said that. 
but I needed it because I was looking at the man and the celebrity and not looking behind the scenes that man will promote you. Pastor Dave would always say, Alan, if you if you tell people what they want to hear, they'll reward you with, with popularity and finances. But our job is not to tell people what they want to hear. Our job is to tell people and teach people the Word of God. The church as a whole is to protect that and keep that standard high. And unfortunately, as I look across much of the church world today, it seems like the places who maybe strive for character are not striving for a move of God. And it seems like the people who are striving for a move of God are not striving for character. I think we should strive for both. That we should first strive to see the characteristics of God grow in us individually. And as a church, to keep the standard high of what is a man of God? What is a woman of God? What makes a man of God is these characteristics. Not just that God is using them. How puzzled was I when I'd hear stories of preachers who I respected and found out their inward struggles and their, their sins that they had had the whole time they were preaching. How could God use them? And, and why would God use them? Well, that's the gifts of the Spirit that's on a calling. But there is a walk of God of integrity, of love, of maturity. This word, incorruptibility, reverence. These are, these are words that you don't hear so often anymore. And we should be hearing that in every church. Every church, there should be a standard that we are here to help you to grow up in God, not just be used of God, not just to try to give you an opportunity to hear God and to lay hands on the sick and to prophesy over people. We're here to help each other grow up in these characteristics. Let me read them again. Great faith words. Discreet, chaste, homemakers, talking about wives, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort your young man to be sober-minded, all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that no one can condemn. This is talking about a Christian church, a lifestyle of a church, a group of people growing up together in maturing in the knowledge of God, in sound doctrine. It's not talking about how God uses someone to hear, to experience. This is talking about a practical, a very solid, practical way. And I think the message for us today is let's make sure we're focused on the right thing. The other stuff will come. I really believe that the other stuff that we're believing God for, the signs and wonders and miracles, Blind eyes opening, deaf ears opening. I'll give you my other favorite verse here as I'm winding down. 1 Corinthians, well, I'll start in chapter 12. It's not my favorite verse, but I'll read it to you. Verse 31, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So the less excellent way is to have God work through you, through the giftings, which don't require holiness or maturity. And that's where many people end up seeking. I'm seeking after a move of God. Chapter 13 is the more excellent way. I'd much rather focus on the more excellent way. Let's do a seminar. The gifts of the Spirit, the less excellent way. 
you know, let's spend a week of our time learning about the less excellent way. How about we just focus on the more excellent way? Love, chapter 13, is the more excellent way. This is the development of maturing of the characteristics of Christ in you as a person growing up, no longer acting like a child, but as a, a mature man or woman of God. This is the more excellent way. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind, does not envy, love does not pray to itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is the walk of maturity. This is, this is the characteristics of your inner man growing up, Christ in you. It's not puffed up. It does not pray to itself. This is who we're supposed to, this is the Jesus we need to show the world. Not just the signs and the wonders. Let's be very careful. Let's not chase the signs and the wonders, the miracles. That is the goal. The goal is that that will come forward where just like Jesus, every person who came to him was healed. We want that same thing to happen with us as a church. But let's be clear. They didn't just experience Jesus the miracle worker. They experienced Jesus the man of God, the man of holiness, the man of love, the man of integrity. That is the same sincere man of sound doctrine who matured in truth. That was the whole package of Christ, not just the miracles, not just the signs and wonders. I want to be careful because if you're only seeking signs and wonders as your statement of this is God, because look at all the flashy lights, look at what's going on. I was preaching in in the church one time, and the Bible became gold dust on my Bible. And I remember thinking, I could now make a large claim Look at the gold dust on my church, on my Bible. Look, church. Look at how God is using me. Wow. See, but I didn't. I chose not to tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone. I kept it to myself because I did not want myself or the church to look at that as something special. That oil in that came out of that Bible in Nicaragua, whether it was God or demonic, I don't care. To me, it was it was nothing. Nothing was shown. It got people excited about the possibility. No one was healed by it. It was nothing fantastic. The true oil is the Holy Spirit in your life. The true sign of wonder, in my view, is the integrity of love and holiness that God can do. The very love of Jesus. The very holiness of Jesus. The very peace of Christ. Man, that could be in you. That is the true sign. Not just a move of God, of signs and wonders and prophesying. One guy, I'm trying not to nitpick too much, but there's one service everyone talked about, and I watched it. I watched some of it. And it was a guy who would tell you your address and, and say God and say lots of nice things about different people specifically. It was quite impressive. But I thought, what really changed in this hour and a half of service what really changed except we went wow that's amazing but what really changed in us it brought some encouragement for some people possibly but what really changed in that moment except we all got excited about how god was working 
through a man. We should get excited about these characteristics of love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not pray to self. It is not puffed up. If you want to know if something is a gift of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working through a calling, versus God using the love and maturity of a person to authorize his power. It's only if this love is present, the holiness, the integrity, the standard of truth is present, that will tell you where the source of that miracle came from. Many men and women that I know, Elaine Homer used to say that when she was a young girl, there was one, one particular evangelist who she watched. Who, he'd preach one night and they'd, they had a tent meeting in the old days and they would bring ambulances of people in cots. And she said people get healed that night, miracle after miracle after miracle. And then that night, he, he would either try to molest her as a young girl, or she would see him with a homosexual affair. And the next day, there he was again, ambulances and miracle after miracle after miracle. Well, I can tell you from what I've learned, that is a gift of the Spirit. That's God, the Holy Spirit working through his calling to touch people. It wasn't because he had integrity or love or holiness working in his life. If you only chase after the gift of the spirits, the spirit, the gifts of the spirit, you're not chasing after love. We must chase love. Look what it says here. Verse 31, chapter 12. But earnestly desire the best gift. So the word desire here in the New King James means I desire that. I want the Holy Spirit to work. I don't want to wait till I'm perfect before he can do something in my life. I want him to work now. Even when I'm a dysfunctional and not perfect yet, not mature yet, he wants to work through you. I can desire that best gift for my calling while I'm working on maturing. I don't have to wait till I'm perfect. But then in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So I pursued my wife, Christy. I wanted her to be my wife. I pursued her. See, we're to pursue love, not the gift. We're not to pursue God using me. God, I want you to use me. I'm pursuing that. No, we're to pursue the maturity, the love, the characteristics of maturity, integrity. That's what we pursue. We desire gifts. We desire a move of God, but we're to pursue maturity, pursue the love of God in us. Let's seek God the right way. Let's be encouraged because... Church, to me, is not about a big, not to be a big event every week where something spectacular happens. That's not what church is to be. We like those things when it happens, but it's not to be our life. We're not, a, we're not drug addicts. We're not addicted to those experiences. We shouldn't be. We should be pursuing the everyday, growing up, maturing, get up tomorrow, do it again, get up tomorrow, do it again, one guy, Got a girlfriend, liked the idea of pursuing the girl, chasing her down, winning her over, and then whenever he'd get familiar, he'd get rid of her and find another girl to chase. And he spent his whole life always chasing because he wanted that high, that excitement. And he never ended up with a family, never ended up with a relationship because he was trying to take one aspect of a relationship and make it the highlight. He was wanting the thrill, the excitement of dating and having fun and pursuing and winning her over but as soon as that was he caught her 
He was bored with her. Well, let's not be like that with the church where we're pursuing a move of God where every day is exciting and, and amazing and incredible. There should be a practicality to where it's, it's the love of God. It's the building and the growing and the maturing together. And then we will have our revival, but it won't disappear because of failures in men. Let's have that integrity. Let's chase it. I'm not there yet, but that's my pursuit. I pray that's your pursuit too. Thank you for letting me share with you. I love you. God bless you. And I'll see you soon.